0: Oh, good morning. Glad to see you all. Um, If you're new, uh, every week we we sing a few songs, uh, two, three songs, and then someone gets up here, usually me, and uh, we open up the Bible, read from it, and talk at you for an hour and a half or so, and so we're going to do the same today, and where we've been and what we've been doing um, is working through the Bible kind of um, from the beginning, I guess, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, we've got two different parts, Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament kind of captures the beginning, meaning here's how it all got started, and uh, so the beginning of what I would just classify as chaos, the beginning of the downward downward spiral. It starts up high and works itself low pretty quick. So that's the whole Old Testament, the beginning of the chaos and downward spiral and the wrecking of all human history, right? Then the New Testament is kind of is the beginning of the restoration, right? So the Old Testament all talks about how human beings got here and how corrupt and bankrupt, uh, they are, we are, etc., etc., then uh, so the whole Old Testament has just kind of given us this treatise or understanding of how broke uh, human history is. In fact, what you'll see over and over again throughout uh, the Old Testament is these, these stories of people continuing trying to be in control, have their own way, take advantage of people, and what ends up happening every time is death and despair. But at the end of all those stories, every time you read the Old Testament, every single one of the stories, there's this glimmer of hope. There's like this this um, small glimpse, foreshadowing of what's to come, and that's going to be that there'll be a Savior. His name will be Jesus, and he shows up in, in, uh, in the Gospels, the first few books of the New Testament, the biographies of his life, to kind of declare that the Savior, the hero of the world, is here. And so he kind of started beginning, saying, okay, if there will be restoration to come, what are we restoring exactly? And So for the last several months, we started in Genesis chapter 1 and just kind of methodically been working through it. But here's kind of the summary of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11 are all the same story, just with... uh different generations. So you got Adam and Eve, they have some kids, a farmer and a shepherd, they go to war to ch- against each other and one kills the other. Then the, the, they have kids, who have kids, who have kids, who have kids, and each set of kids hates their kids and hurts each other and they die too. And so this, this generational thing over and over again where something gets started and then life gets worse. Um, to the point even in the Bible, you, know, you may be familiar with the it, a story of Noah's Ark, which is uh, a horrific story because God looks at the entire world and says, there is no hope. There's no hope. All you're doing is killing each other, murdering each other, and destroying each other. And God, what I would offer his graciousness and his graciousness, puts the entire human race out of its misery, meaning there is nothing good that was going to ever happen for them from that point forward. So God then hits the reset button, starts with a family uh, uh, with a leader named Noah, and unfortunately it doesn't go much better that generation. And then finally, um, in Genesis chapter twelve, everything changes, and I, I don't even mean hyperbolically; it literally changes. Everything changes. And so, Genesis chapter one through eleven is just basically a story of corruption and despair. And then Genesis chapter twelve, God comes in and says, "Hey," and He's talking to this dude named Abram, who came from a pagan society. And he says, "Abram, through you, I am going to bless all nations. I am." going to offer all sorts of promises that I'm going to fulfill. In fact, you'll see throughout the Bible, there's over 3,000 promises made by God. And he tells Abram in Genesis chapter 12, I am going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing for everyone else. So he makes that declaration. And here's what's crazy about it. It has nothing to do with who Abram is. It doesn't matter if he's good or bad, whether or not he performs well. He basically says, Abram, regardless of your behavior, regardless of who you are, I'm going to show off my goodness and my mercy and my love through you and then through your family. So, we've been talking about it for several uh, weeks This, this term called covenant. And covenant is this idea that God makes a promise and fulfills a promise every single time. Like God is always going to fulfill his promises and it has nothing to do with our behavior. So, in fact, in the middle of that, to help Abram get it, he literally gives Abram a name change and changes his name from Abram to Abraham translated in Hebrew, Abram means daddy. Abraham means daddy of many, daddy, big daddy. And so he literally gives him a new name change. And he says, through you, through your offspring, I am going to bless all nations. And one day, one day I will make all things right and all things new. In fact, if you're to skip ahead 1,600 years later, uh, another guy is writing the Bible. His name is John, Jesus' buddy. And he has this picture from Jesus. And then he writes in Revelation that there will be a day where there will be no more tears no more pain, and no more sorrow. So God is going, let me show you through this family how I always keep my promises so that you can count on that promise that's still yet to come for us, right? So when we experience grieving and pain in this world, there's a reason for it. And it's because this world is not the way God originally designed it. Our corruption has messed it up, led it to bankruptcy, all sorts of stuff. And every time we shed a tear in pain or sorrow, that tear is indicative of us living in a world that God didn't, create in a world that human beings just corrupted and so every time we shed a tear there's a reminder that God says there will be a day where there's no more tears and no more pain and the way by which he solidifies that understanding for us is through this covenant he makes with this group of people. We've been studying them for the last couple of weeks. We've called it the patriarchs and kind of just looking at Abraham and his family on down. So we started with Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. And so you got two different things going on. We have this big macro belief that God will fulfill all of his promises and he'll make all things new one day. And then this micro understanding that God gives us a glimpse of the way that the world's going to be through each one of these family member. So every family, there's someone in the the family that's representative of what God is going to do on a macro level at the end of the day. So Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, really messed up story, but then at the end what we see is that God is the one who's going to provide. Right? And so Abraham has Jacob and Esau, and through some really messy circumstances, Jacob is a horrible human being, manipulator, a liar, deceiver, and yet God goes, I am not basing whether or not I'm going to be gracious or keep my word on you or your Behavior because covenant means without stipulations. So God even blesses Jacob and blesses his family. And then last week we saw as Jacob has these 12 sons, he has a favorite, all sorts of complications. Really wouldn't recommend you having a favorite child, it creates some issues. And we learned about this other patriarch, this guy named Joseph, no, Joseph is going to, again, this is a micro level, going to give us a picture of God's salvation and how he, he works on, uh, in mysterious ways and in unique things. So the first word we've been talking about for the last several months is covenant. Another word that I've been introducing you to is the word providence. And providence, when we talk about the word, I want you to see two things. One, I want you to see an eyeball. I want you to see that God sees all things, sees all things at all times. And then I want you to see a hand, and God works in all things in all times, right? So we talk about these two things, that God is bending and shaping everything, everything. Everything good, everything broken. He's bending and shaping everything for two things, our good and God's glory simultaneously and concurrently and we're going to figure out exactly how god does that how he's always worked together for our good and his glory at all times so if you're like i'm not sure that god really does that i'm sure he exists really good week for you to be here but just to make sure you know the story of joseph here's a quick review from last week enjoy
1: Still with Joe, even in prison. The guard decided he liked Joe so much, he put him in charge of all the other prisoners. Then God gave Joe special knowledge about dreams. When two prisoners had him,
0: So now you know the story of Joseph. Um, In the Bible, it's covered through Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. So Moses, the writer of the book of Genesis, spends more time on Joseph than anyone else. So it's pretty significant. But typically when uh, someone preaches on it, what they try to do is just kind of give you the, the big overarching picture. Here's 37 through 50. Joseph's a little bit of a twerp, a little bit arrogant, tattletale. But God gives him this great dream. Hooray, then through a crazy series of unfortunate events that God is somehow orchestrating. uh, God eventually works it all together for Joseph's good and his glory. And then in Genesis chapter 50, hooray, Joseph's dream came true, right? So that's a really nice way to do it. In fact, uh, typically the, the crescendo of of this sermon, and in fact your kiddos are talking about today, we'll talk about it again in a couple weeks, is this passage in Genesis chapter 50, it's verses 19 and 20, where Joseph's dad, Jacob, dies, and all of a sudden the brothers are really, really concerned, because they go, hey, Joseph's been really nice to us, because he doesn't want to disappoint our dad, and and dad doesn't want to see his other boys be punished, but as soon as dad goes, we're in big trouble. So they scheme and go together and go, hey, we're just going to go to Joseph and say we'll be his slaves. It's better than being dead. So they show up on hands and knees crying, Joseph, I'm so sorry we did this. We shouldn't have done this. Please forgive me. Please forgive us. We, we, we mistreated you in this kind of moment. And in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, Joseph pauses for a second and goes, hey, 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 And he asks this question, am I not in the place of God? Like literally, do you not see that God is in all this? And then he makes this Crazy, complicated statement. What you intended for harm. Okay, let's talk about your premeditated motivation. You intended it for harm. He says this. God intended. That's a complicated verse in verse 20. God intended it for good. Meaning, somehow, God was making all this happen too. So, these human beings were corrupt and doing something bad. Concurrently, simultaneously, God was taking all that and bending and shaping it for Joseph and his entire family's good. And for his glory. So, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And then he gives us this kind of disclaimer the saving of many lives. So, God literally, you know, Joseph's saying, God decided to save our family, save Egypt, save Israel, save everyone through this plan. So, it's like, oh, hooray, God's so good, crescendo, big feel, woohoo, the end, let's pray kind of deal, right? But the reality is, we know for sure that Joseph gets sold into slavery at 17. And we know we find him in 30 in prison. So we know at least, at least 13 years of time have passed uh, between uh, Joseph being the favorite at home to this long, drawn out, what we'd classify or I'd classify as suffering. Nobody wants to be a slave. Nobody wants to be in prison. And the majority of Joseph's, like lively, uh, his, his youthful years was spent behind bars or as a slave. And so, a lot of times when we look at this passage, we go, let's just talk about the whole thing. See, isn't God so great? He saved the whole people. Hooray. Joseph was a slave and a prisoner. That's where he spent the majority of his time. And I've been telling you that uh, God was providential through all that. He was bending and shaping it for um, his, uh, Joseph's good, his family's good, and God's glory. And we get to the end of verse 20, and it says that God intended to do this to Joseph. So at least 13 years of suffering and pain, probably a lot more. This dream that he had still hadn't come to fruition. And it would make sense that we'd actually talk about those things, right? Instead of just talking about, yay, God, puppies and rainbows, the end. We'd actually lean in and talk about the complications that come in our life. In fact, Jesus tells us this, really, really important for you to know, in John chapter 16. He tells us all, he gives us all this instruction and tells us all about how he loves us. He's going to give us his Holy Spirit. He tells us all sorts of nice things. Gives us confidence in heaven, all those things. And then at the end of it, John chapter 6, John chapter 16, he says, I tell you all these things. So he tells us why he tells us this. Because in this world, you will, will, W-I-L-L, will have trouble. Not, you might have trouble, it's a possibility you have trouble. He literally is making a declaration. This world is broken, and in it you will have trouble. But, take heart, for I have overcome the world. So Jesus gives us this really good picture in the New Testament. He prepares us for pain and suffering, and then tells us that he's going to overcome it. But we're still going to have pain and suffering. So it makes sense that you would understand that, particularly those of you who are on the fence and do jump into this Christian thing. If you become a Christian, life isn't going to automatically get better for you. You're not going to have this Jesus in a bottle that you rub the belly and he comes out and uh, makes sure everything's fine. In fact, some of you have tried the the Jesus thing a couple times because you've thought that once you did that, that God would fix all your problems. Fix your kids, fix your marriage. And then that didn't instantaneously happen. And you thought, what's the point of this? I might as well at least go and enjoy my life then, right? So it makes sense that we would spend some time talking about suffering and what it's like. And, by the way, where this world, um, those that don't believe in Jesus aren't Christ followers, where they're the most mesmerized by the Christian faith is in the people who are in the middle of struggling and in the middle of suffering who still continue to say, God is still good and God is still God. It's not that they're like, wow, you love Jesus and you got a BMW. Man, that's a neat religion, right? It's actually in the middle of suffering that they go, I'm actually intrigued why you can say that. In these moments. So it makes sense for those of us walking in this faith to figure out what God might be, could be, probably is doing in the middle of that suffering. And for those of you kind of looking on the outside to go, okay, it's kind of weird that you're talking about a God who allows for sure, maybe even intends suffering. That's a God I have a problem with. So yeah, let's see what he's up to. So that's what we're going to do today. And um, what I shared with you last week, kind of the bow uh, at the end of the sermon that knew I'd get to jump into it more heavily this week, um, was. When you see the story of Joseph, he gets, you see all these series of unfortunate events. He gets, instead of dies, he gets thrown in a, a, a cistern or a pit, but it's empty of water good. Joseph doesn't drown. Really good. Briggs was telling me this last week. We were talking about this. My son, he was like, that's pretty good because those folks probably didn't swim. They I like swimming pools. There's no reason for them to take swim lessons. So even that's pretty neat that he gets thrown into an empty cistern instead of one filled with water. And God continues to orchestrate things. And then he gets sold into slavery. So now he's in slavery. And then we find himself in slavery in Potiphar. That's a big governor in the Egyptian government. A wealthy guy. He's in his household. And the Bible tells us in uh, Genesis chapter thirty-nine that God was with Joseph. Really, really important, and blessed all the things that Joseph did. So we see that even though Joseph was a little punk who lied about his family, manipulated, then was you know arrogant, boasting about his dreams, all those kind of things. All of a sudden, we find Joseph now in a place of humility. Right? He's a he's a slave, and it tells us that Joseph was with God, and so part of the picture was. You see, what God was bending and shaping, first and foremost, was he was giving himself to Joseph, right? Because, big picture, ultimate picture, is you and God forever. So, Joseph busy about his own life, celebrating that he's the favorite, probably wasn't interested in a God or anything else, and then all of a sudden he gets loan, sold into slavery, and now there's a pause, there is Mm-hmm. An awareness in suffering that tells us that you're not really in control. That's one thing suffering does for us. It tells us we're not in control. You never were, but you don't really think about that until you're suffering. And so, jo- it says Joseph was. God was with him, and God blessed him. So he's working everything for. Joseph's good, and God's getting the credit, God's glory, right? And then in the middle of that passage, in Genesis chapter 39, it tells us that Potiphar's wife is very interested in Joseph. It says that uh, she was interested in in his stature and his appearance, meaning he had a nice body and a nice face, and maybe a good personality. I don't know. But we know that Potiphar's wife was smitten with Joseph, and so she comes on to him in in an inappropriate way. Assault, right? Hey, big boy, I see you there. Hey, boy, what you up to, boy? I see you, boy, like that kind of stuff. And Joseph's like, this is the first time we see Joseph have good behavior. He goes, not going to do it, right? No, thank you, and takes off. He actually flees. She grabs him by his robe. The robe comes off. He's, you know, all sorts of complications. You can imagine the picture. And so she's embarrassed. So she goes to her husband and says, uh, actually lies, says the exact opposite. Joseph did these things to me, not that I did these things to Joseph. As you can imagine, Potiphar is not very happy, right? She's carrying his robe, so something went down, and so Potiphar has him thrown into prison. Rightfully so, if that's a true story. And so now we find Joseph in prison. Now when he's in prison, he worked himself up, right? He had a really good life in the slave compound. Now he's back in prison, and it tells us again in Genesis chapter 39 that God was with Joseph and blessed him in all that he did. And so... There is this peace that we've got to see in all the suffering. There is something going on here that God actually shows up and is present with Joseph. Now we'd go, that's pretty neat. And some of us, if, in your, if you're in the Christian world, you go, I think. I think I've had those experiences. In my deepest pain and sorrow, I felt like God was present. In my deepest pain and sorrow, I felt like God gave me his peace. Some of us have that kind of story. But I want to flesh that out a little bit more to kind of go, okay, what would that look like and how does that work? So we're going to try to figure out what exactly was it that— what did, what did Joseph actually get when he was in slavery and prison? When it says God was with him— What exactly are we talking about here, right? Because you're like, what I feeling? Would I have goosebumps? Would he whisper to me? What is it like to have the presence of God? Because if I'm speaking on behalf of most of us, most of us probably have never had that experience. And you actually are a little insecure talking about that because you don't know exactly what God does there and does that make you not a Christian? Lots to work through there. So let's talk very specifically about what it means to have God's presence. Now, the neat thing about this is throughout the Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, God actually... Uh, uses an analogy to describe what it's like to have His presence near us. I mean, you get, now I talk about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. You talk uh, the words like wind and fire come up there, which is kind of crazy. You think about wind and fire are, are a pretty dangerous combination, and yet that's how yeah, the Holy Spirit's described. But when, when we talk about God's presence in our life, one of the things that both Jesus uses and Old Testament writers use is the word shepherd. Okay, shepherd. So by shepherd, this is really neat, Joseph would have been aware of this because he grew up in a, you know, a pasture or a pasturing, P-A-S-T-U-R-I-N-G, pasturing family, like a, a, a family that took care of uh, small sets of livestock, sheep, goats, those kind of things. And the way that a shepherd worked is kind of the, 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 the ultimate goal for a shepherd, okay, would to be to lead sheep from where they are to where they need to be. You follow me? So sheep, their job is to protect the sheep, care for the sheep, and make sure the sheep have everything they need, have their needs met, so they can survive. And the way that would happen in in kind of a nomadic or gypsy-like world would be that these guys would take their sheep from field to field throughout the countryside, right? Because there wasn't a lot of water, there wasn't a lot of growth happening, so it's not like they could just stay in one little field and eat all the time. And so the, the kind of the, the priority for the shepherds were, were to actually take these sheep and guide them to um, uh, green pastures, water, all those things. And the way by which they do it is they keep them with them, and sometimes they, uh, they would have this, this rod and this staff, and those things we understood uh, now and even back then kind of did two things. They um, protected... The sheep, right? They protected them from wolves, whatever else. Stay away from my sheep. Whack, right? They protected them from the sheep. And they corrected the sheep. Corrected and protected. You got it? So if the sheep got out of line, they'd use the rod. They'd use the staff gently or not so gently. Get them back in line to make sure they didn't take off. So what we understand about a shepherd is that their job was to lead sheep from where they were and to where God wants them to be. And the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, describe the way that God interacts with us. As a shepherd, okay, so take a little while to explain this, and it gets really complicated. Not so much for us as it would have 2,000 years ago when people were reading the Old Testament, the Torah, and um, what we're going to look at today is uh, Psalm chapter 23. This guy named David writes it, and he's talking about the Lord is our shepherd. And we find comfort in it, and we read it at um, during funerals, all those kind of things. But first century Jews, okay? So those would have been the people who would have followed Abraham, they, and then uh, Moses, you know, and Jacob, all these guys. These Jews who believe that there is a way by which you appease God by your behavior. And they had the Old Testament to go, God gave us laws, therefore we should follow the laws. They missed it, because the reason God gave us the laws was to prove to us we could and follow the laws and proved to us we needed a savior. But they had this, these like rituals and these rules. And one of the things that rabbis really hated, ironically, was Psalm 23. Because they held God in high esteem, Yahweh. In fact, to the point where they wouldn't even write his name out. Like even when you see it now, G-D or, w- or Y-H-W-H. They had so much reverence for who God was that they couldn't even say his whole name, right? And the way that my dad couldn't say a whole cuss word, when he uh, worked on things because he was you know, a Christian, and so he just left out the vowels. You know what I'm talking about? You know exactly what I'm talking about there. So they would leave out the vowels in reverence of, um, of God. And so they had a really hard time with Psalm chapter 23 because they couldn't fathom that people would explain that God was a shepherd a shepherd because one of the things that happens you're actually going to see it in this story Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50 is Joseph when he brings his family over to Egypt he's like hey can we have the area of Goshen because I'm going to bring some my, my family shepherds and Pharaoh's like ooh gross. We don't like shepherds. We're civilized, right? We, we don't want your shepherds and your sheep on our croplands. We are agriculturalists, right? And so, throughout history, you've seen this battle from the beginning, Cain and Abel, shepherds versus farmers, but one of the things that uh, the Egyptians didn't like was that sheep actually, they're, they're terrible animals. They're not very smart. They don't really follow directions and they don't bite the grass, they rip it up. They kind of grab it and rip. So they rip up the grass by the roots. And so if you leave a sheep on any field for any period of time, it, it wrecks the land. So the pasturing idea made sense. But as people started to settle, shepherds were disliked and considered, um, you see it throughout history, particularly when you get to the time of Jesus. They slowly evolved into like a, like a, a very low class of um, employees or occupations. In fact, there were two horrific classes of people, or two occupations, in the first century when Jesus shows up. One, white collar, was tax collectors. Everybody hated tax collectors because they were rude, disrespectful, and manipulative, and cheats. Right, So everybody hated them. So that's the white collar job. The blue collar job was shepherds. They were considered like two-thirds of a person. They couldn't vote if there's voting options. They couldn't even testify in a court because they were considered to not even be trustworthy in their words or their witness. And so, the idea that God God would be referred to as a shepherd is very offensive to uh, these rabbis, and yet in the middle of their, or the, uh, you know towards the end of their their big Old Testament, their Torah, is this crazy packet pa- passage where God is called. A shepherd. Now, this passage that we're going to read gives us an idea of what it means for God to be with us, and it's written by this guy named David. So, David comes through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Judah, and on down. So, this is this is Jacob's family line. This is his bloodline. And so, one thing's interesting for David is he, believe it or not, was also a shepherd and was laughed at for his occupation. But through some crazy circumstances, and God ordains providence, David becomes the king of Israel the nation and the people saved by Joseph. So much further down the road, David is, uh, becomes this king. And as he's this king and reflecting on his good life, okay, he sits down a thousand years before Jesus shows up, so 3,000 years ago, and he writes this letter that we still have. And it's Psalm chapter 23, and it's just six verses, where he talks exactly about what the experience has been like for him to have God with us. So we're just going to read through it and make lots of observations one verse at a time about what it means to have God with us. So Joseph had God with him. David had God with him. And I would argue that God is available for us to have with us as well. So how does that work and what would that look like? And so David writes this letter a little bit later in a more of a retrospective way. He is now king. He's gone through some rough parts in his life. And this is how he starts. And you're going to be familiar with it. And here's what it says. Psalm chapter 23 beginning in verse one. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay, shepherd's a are, are terrible occupation. But David is actually talking about Yahweh, the self-sustaining God who always was and always will be, who needs nothing from anyone. Yahweh, the Lord, is my shepherd. I lack nothing. So another way that would be is, you can say it this way, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore what else could I want? Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now, this is really important. Because David's not writing this early in his life, so if you don't know much about David's story, he uh, you know he defeated Goliath, you know took off Saul's armor, used the stones, defeated Goliath. He was brave, hooray, yeah yeah, all this kind of stuff. Again, a picture of we're not David in the story. We're the. You know, where the the Israelites who are afraid and this guy comes in and saves the day for us and then cuts off the head of the bad guy, right? That's indicative of another savior who's going to come and defeat the enemy and save us, right, Jesus. And so David does that. And then David, you know, very godly, loves God, is very respectful and honoring. And then David, like other human beings, had had made some bad decisions. One particularly, he was eavesdropping, that's the word, um, on his rooftop. And he's looking down, and he sees a lady named Bathsheba bathing. And uh, so she's there, and he goes, I like that. Uh, and then summons her, brings her back. She's married. They have an adulterous affair. She gets pregnant. David covers up the pregnancy by murdering the husband, Right tries to bring him back. That didn't work because he's too honoring of a guy. He's like, let me trick this. Let me trick her into thinking he's the daddy, right? That doesn't happen until literally he murders this guy. You should read your Bible. It's all sorts of crazy. It'll make you feel better about your own family. And so David does all that and then so this guy, this king, has an adulterous affair and he's now a murderer, right? That's part of his life. David writes this after that. So he's reflecting on the life that he has now led and saying, boy, I'm a wreck and I'm a mess and yet God still has guided me. He's led me from where I was. That was some pretty bad stuff to where I need to be. So this is David having some humility and coming to some conclusions that go, there is no way I could have gotten myself here. You know, it's interesting. um, In the Bible world, it's kind of these two camps. I hate camps. and and, uh, It's very reductionistic. And they come from these uh, these pastors, thought leaders, Arminius and Calvin. You might be familiar with them. Um, So... Calvin writes this um, thought and this understanding of how God saves people, what it looks like. And he really hinges on that Genesis, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 29, that for God predestined, this idea that God predestines. He works everything together for the good and he predestines it, meaning God orchestrates all things, he saves people. And Arminius was like, wait, if God predestines and saves all people, then does that mean he also, the ones he doesn't predestine, is he by nature selecting them to go to hell? Right, so they got this big issue, and there's passages of scripture that says, "Well, he predestined," and another one says, "God's not willing for any to perish, but all to come to do the, the, the salvation through repentance." You know, you got, got these different pieces, and so. When I planted a church, I was very thinking, I I think they messed up the predestination thing because I was hardly convinced that every single human being, the, the big premise was on what's called soul freedom, the idea that we could choose our own destiny, which is important to us Americans. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? It's written in our Declaration of Independence. We take it seriously. So this idea that I actually couldn't make my own decisions, be in charge of my own life. It just it was, it was a foreign concept to me, right? There's just no way. I'm in charge. I make decisions. I do those things, and I reap what I sow. More than I sow, later than I sow as a result of the decisions I made, right? Um, but then something interesting happened for me. About 11, 12 years ago, I was in the middle of planting a church. So I started a new church. was a college pastor turned church planner. Um, and as we planned the church, i would just be very, very candid with you guys. I was a horrific pastor. Like, I'm not even trying to be funny here, like, I mean, it was terrible. We had lots of clever series, all sorts of funny stuff, like Jesus Gone Wild, and that was one of the taglines, and used horrible graphics for it, and thought it was real clever and catchy, Satan sex ed, where we talk about how, what Satan wants you to believe about sex, like, just, you know, these cute, catchy things. In fact, the, uh, the very first Easter we opened in March, so the very first Easter of the next month in April, um, so ridiculous, I brought a, a body piercer on stage, I'm making this up, and I preached on... A, call it preaching, I don't know what I did, but I talked about Isaiah 53, he, he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, you know, by his stripes we are healed, yeah, you know, um, but the big crescendo of it as I was preaching it, um, I've never used the word crescendo, I've used it twice now, um, as I was preaching it, um, there was a lady piercing my eyebrow, you get this, I'm, I'm preaching on stage, and a body piercer is on stage with me piercing my eyebrow, and people in the in the, in the, in the crowd, like, they're like, getting all, like, they're, they're fainting, right? I mean, this is gross. I'm bloody, and I'm preaching about Jesus being pierced for our transgressions, and, and I'm going, see, that you feel. Jesus did much worse. Pray a prayer. Ask Jesus into your life. Let's add it to the denominational numbers or whatever it is, right? And so, like, I'm, I'm preaching this message, and I, I have no idea what I'm thinking. No idea, other than I'm trying to draw a crowd, trying to do something, and um, there's these two different words we use as it relates to the Bible. One's eisegetical. That means uh, you put into the Bible what you want to. So let me find a passage and use it as my Bible dart. Isegetical means I'm just kind of sticking my own opinions in there. I'm not pulling from the Bible. I'm pushing into the Bible. Ice Exegetical is the opposite where you actually are taking the Bible out. You're pulling it out and just exposing what's in there, right? And I would say for the first uh, year as a pastor there, I was just plucking out cute scriptures, telling cute stories, and I'm ashamed. Thank goodness we didn't have the internet. I mean, it was available, but we didn't have our sermons online and that kind of stuff. So I'd hate for that stuff to be out there. But here's what's crazy. During that whole time, I was a terrible pastor. Um, arrogant. Um, pompous. All, all sorts of things. And yet, I can look back at people that we connected to during that time and real radical transformation that happened in people's lives, their families, their marriages, and all those kind of things. And it had nothing to do with me. If anything, I was, I was tugging the rope the opposite direction in terms of God's holiness and his perfection. And yet, God and his perfect graciousness was still bending and shaping all this for their good my good and his glory and i was i was working against him in fact that's what made me go back to seminary finish up the degree, and that's why i just continued going to school from 28 till now it's just going to, okay i want to make sure that we're not trying to manufacture something and god does something and yet in the middle of all those things god was still god he was still good and he was still faithful so here's the conclusion i can make i believe I have absolute soul freedom but here's my problem Left to my own devices, all my decisions will lead to my demise every single time. I believe wholeheartedly that I get to choose what I want to choose whenever I want to choose it. But left to my own devices, my decisions will lead to my demise every single time. And I just offer that to all of us. The reality is you have absolute freedom to make decisions. The problem is the decisions that you will make from here on into eternity on your own, absent God, will not end well for you. It's just, it's just the reality of what it is. And so when David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd, this is like with a great like relief, like, oh my goodness, I was a dumb sheep. I was a dumb sheep. And thank God, with your rod and your staff, you kept leading me. You kept bringing me back. The Lord is my shepherd. I thought all the other stuff is what I wanted, but none of that stuff is what I wanted. What I wanted, God, was you. I, when I discovered that, when I had you, when I had nothing else, when I had you, I realized you, you, you were enough. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack Nothing. And so we see this passage where David is saying here about getting God's presence is in the middle of that. He's going, I didn't even know that I wanted your presence, right? In fact, that's the reality for us is most of us didn't even realize we wanted God's presence and we got it as a result of just the devastation we're in. And we'll talk about a little bit more of that in just a second. But let me read you the next verse and here's what it says. He makes me, David's still writing about God, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. I want to highlight a word here. We don't like it as Americans. You see the second word in that verse? He makes me. You see this? He makes me. That doesn't mean, well, he kind of gently offers it. No, no, no. David is going, thank God he makes me, but he made me come face to face with my sin. You read Psalm 51. Oh God, what a wretch I am. see these things he's saying. Created me a clean heart, oh God, renew a steadfast spirit, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. So David, as a result of you know his sin and Bathsheba and the murder, finally at some point comes face to face with the pain. And it says this. It says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes us. He makes us, and the most interesting thing is most of the time that's with resistance. Most of the time, it's in pain and sorrow, some kind of regret we have, or we finally call it to God when we're all alone. You think about the story of Joseph, right? He, he doesn't have any entertainment at night. He's a slave. So what does he do at night? He sits still. He's imprisoned. What does he do? Uh, sits still. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and watch this. He leads me beside quiet waters. So David's going, use my shepherd, but here's how he's been with me. In the middle, he's finally allowed me to hit that wall. He's made me come still. He's, he made me find the right place for nourishment. He made me discover that it wasn't that marriage, those people, that thing, right? He made me realize that my resume wasn't enough, right? He made me realize those things weren't satisfying. And then it says he leads me beside quiet waters. So when you see where he leads us, right, it's to this place of quiet. In fact, scriptures tell us that God tells us to be still, and know that he's God. So um, a few years before I planted a church, or several years actually, so seven years earlier, I've kind of popped in a little bit of the story the last couple of weeks, and um, told you I was married. You can go back and listen to the sermons. last week, week before, I covered it both times. And uh, so long story short, married a girl, became a ready-made stepdad. Dad went in the picture. thought I, accomplished all the things, really excited, and became a, a youth pastor three months into marriage. I'm pulling into our church, about to get out, got nursery duty, and um, my spouse takes off her rings and says, sorry, I can't do this. Never loved you. In that moment, I lost my spouse, lost basically what what felt like my child, you know, and just complete devastation. I didn't tell anybody that. I put on my happy face because I was at church, and that's what you do. Went in, you know, I had nursery duty, and then I came home and didn't tell anybody. Didn't tell my parents. I'm just sitting in my house that, you know, we shared. Now it's just me in this house that I paid for, all the stuff in it, furniture, all that kind of stuff, and just in some pain, and, you know, I just somehow kind of on the TV and just distracted myself, right? Just distracted myself. Couldn't think about it. Couldn't do those things. Some of you know what that's like. And I'm not real proud of all the ways I distracted myself. Be Very candid with you. Um, and then, uh, then the next morning I got up. I was a part-time youth pastor, full-time a banker. So I got up and put on my suit and drove into work about 30 minutes away. And there are retail banking hours. So I was here from like 9 to 7. It was a long day. Again, I'm I'm only halfway present. Nobody else knows because I'm too proud to let anybody else into my world. And um, uh, then I pull back home and I uh, I walk in and uh to my house and the whole house is completely empty. And I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about all the furniture, uh, the TVs stovetop stuffings in the freezer. I just walked into a completely empty house. Ironically, the only thing that was left was a dirty pot and a crib because they didn't need the crib anymore. And I remember, I remember I couldn't even look at it. I couldn't look at it. So I went into the coat closet in the middle of the house and I shut the door and I fell flat on my face and just sobbed, screaming, sobbing, screaming, sobbing. It was just horrific. It was interesting. As I'm laying there in the middle of that closet, screaming, I had a vision. I don't get these much. I had a a very clear picture. It's like, you know, like you're watching a TV where they have the back, you know, the the flashback. I had one of those. And three years earlier, two years earlier, I was in school. And prior to that, I felt like God wanted my future, wanted me to be a pastor. And to be honest with you, I thought pastors were creepy. I grew up in a pastor's home. Felt like they were all fake. Didn't want to do that. And kept negotiating with God and telling him, I think I could do something better than that for sure. What a lame job, you know. And uh, so... I was at a, I was, went to a church. I mean, I still was trying to walk the God life and negotiate with God. I, I had changed my degree and was starting, I was studying discrete mathematics, preparing for the LSAT. I was going to law school and I was going to be a politician. I was going to fix everything. Right. And I told God that not only was I going to fix it, I was going to give him a shout out when I did, you know, like I want to say, God bless America, you know, and do this in my thumb. Yeah. God bless, you know, whatever it is. And I, so that was my plan. And so I go to a, a church on a Sunday and I hear a sermon, and it's about obedience versus disobedience, and I'm like, oh, that's not a good one. It's like the Jonah thing, you know, like, go, go, don't go to Nineveh, or maybe you're supposed to, or Tarsus, whatever those things are, you get that? So afterwards, I found the youth pastor. I didn't know him real well, What my church, knew him okay. His name was Marty, and I'm telling him, I'm like, I'm, I'm confessing to him. I'm going, I think God wants me to be a pastor, but it sounds disgusting. Like, your job sounds horrible, Pastor Marty, right? Couldn't imagine. And I don't want to do it. Here's all I am doing do instead. And Marty says this to me. He says, he says, Oh, don't do it then. It's fine. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love you. I've never wrote a check to a church, but it, who do I make it out to, right? Now I don't know Josh, but about it. do whatever you want. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this guy. And I'm like, I'm listening. I'm like, yeah, okay, finally. A guy gets me. Do whatever you want. And then he says, and I've learned there's one of two options. Either you're going to end up flat on your face or you're going to walk with God. Those are your two options. Remember that. And unfortunately, I decided to go my own route. Skip ahead two and a half, three years. Here I am in this closet, completely flat on my face. Here I am. No one else did it. Made my own decisions. And yet, I have no doubt that God wanted me exactly where I was in that very moment. He led me beside a quiet water. It was a painful one. But it was exactly the nourishment I needed in an exact time. And so here I was. And David's looking back at his life going, I don't know how he does this. Man, I was a mess. But this is what he did. And I'm going, look, I didn't do it right. God and his providence who bends and shapes all things. that's where I'm going, yep, I, I have soul freedom. And yet, I'm so glad that God takes all of our mess and rewrites the story every single day. We write something up on the whiteboard. He writes over it. We write something on the whiteboard. He writes over it, right? It's just the, the story of how God works. He continues to bend and shape all things. And he makes us lion green pastures. He leads us by quiet waters, and watch this. Here's what happens in those quiet waters, and I can attest to this. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. So, a couple things I'll point out there first is after that happened, I um I had some real discovery that I wasn't near as special as I thought I was. I you know had really good experience, graduated first in my class, all state in basketball. Uh, You know, just was able to pretty much manufacture whatever I wanted, right? To have someone look you in the face and say, I don't love you, I love someone else, that's um, pretty painful for your self-confidence, right? And uh, living in a pastor's world at that point, right? Uh, Even trying to appease God on my part-time fake pastoring, um, but highlighted this divorce and all this kind of stuff. So it just was really, really broken. And something really crazy happened. So I had to share it with the church. So i go in front of the church on a Wednesday night and share them what happened. And so you know, humiliating. Long story short, my dad was also on staff there as the music minister. And on Wednesday night, I had to share it uh, on a, at a business meeting. Let me tell you, my wife left me, right? So I'm up on stage trying to share this. And I'm just sobbing, right? To the point where I collapse. And not like in a, I'm trying to be overly dramatic, like just absolutely humiliated and wrecked. Just completely humiliated, completely wrecked. Just miserable, right? And so I walk backstage and dad's like, it's okay. I think they understood. You don't have to go back out there. And I was like, but, I also, but now i wanted to go tell the students. So I was a student pastor. And there was a small small student ministry at that time. It was like 10, 12 kids. And I uh, walk in and crying. So embarrassing, right? Uh, and I, I share with them. And uh, they're like, oh, sorry, that really stinks. You want to go play basketball? I mean, it really was just like that, you know? It was just like, you know? Just like that. And all of a sudden, it's like, to them, I could just start freshing and go play basketball. It just, it wasn't, they didn't identify me or define me as such. They're like, you're going play basketball. No, I had a lot of other stuff that was wrecking me. But they just kind of invited me in the world. And I discovered, for the, really the first time in my life, what grace was and why it was necessary, right? This mulligan, this I get to do it again, and that there's new mercies every day. And so I became an, I'm, I'm telling you, a grace addict. All I want to talk about the people was the grace that God gives. I want to talk about this fresh starts and new beginnings and how gracious God is. How he sees the depths of our heart and loves us the same that he, there's nothing we could ever do to make us love him anymore or love him any less. And so God was shaping and forming all that in that fire, right, in that fire. In fact, in Lamentations, it says, anybody, I'm sorry, Leviticus, it says, anybody, anything that can withstand the fire must be put through it to be purified anything that can withstand fire the only way that you'll find purity is actually through putting it through the fire and so David's going I don't know how you do this but somehow in the middle of all this this grace is pouring into me and my soul is refreshed and he guides me along the right path I am here somehow not because I orchestrated it not because I did it but because God is gracious and he guides me on a path now here's the really important question here why does he do that why in the world would God do that because he's just nice and cute and sweet like why does God do those things Well, this is the weird part. We talk about Psalm 23, but somehow we always miss this part of the verse. It's up there. Why does he do it? For his name's sake. You want to know why God does these things? You want to know why he's good? It's for him to get the credit every single time. Like, God is good always, and he does things, and he bends and shapes things because he always keeps his word, he always keeps his promises, and one of his promises, he only gives good gifts, and he is a good father. Right, And so he always keeps his promises, but his goal at all times is for him to get all the glory for it. He expects to get all the glory. In fact, every time we worship something else, uh, whether it's our spouse, our kids, our job, our cars, it enrages him, right? Because he's a jealous God and he wants all the credit. And that really makes us uncomfortable because we know people who want all the credit and they don't deserve it. But God does. And at first glance, as an American, that's really, really hard for us. But a second one, hear me out here. Oh, guys, this is so relieving. Here's what that means. God's the one signing the checks. And he's concerned about optics. And he's concerned about public relations. He has every intention to always look good. Not to manipulate. Not to to give a false perception. For him, perception is reality. Nowhere else is it. Reality is greater than perception for us, but for him, perception is reality. He is good, and he is God, and he is perfect. And so, when he says he's going to do these things, he is always going to do these things. And the reason he's going to do these things is because he wants all the credit. In fact, he even wants us to participate in doing these things. Let your light so shine before men. Why? So that people can see our good works and do what? Glorify our God in heaven, right? So there's something about all this that guys going. No, 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 no. You can count on me. You can count on me at all times because I am always going to be good. Because My name is the one at stake, not yours. I am always going to be good. I'm never going to lie. I'm always going to keep my promises, and I'm always going to be a perfect steward, and I'm not going to waste anything, none of your pain, none of your sorrow, none of your bad decisions. Why am I not going to? Because it's my name at stake, right? He's going, this is for my name's sake. This is for my goodness. And so David's going, oh, Lord, you did all this stuff. You redeemed that thing. You gave me Solomon out of a broken marriage. You did, you did, you did, you did. Why? Why? Oh, I know why you did. It's for your name's sake. It's because you want other people to know how good you are. David actually says in a different passage, create in me a clean heart of God and renew a steadfast spirit in, in me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways. As a result of this, oh God, yeah, it makes sense that you would do this because you keep all your promises. But it's not for me. It's for you. And it's for your namesake. And even creating me was for your namesake and being in a relationship with me was for your namesake. So David's going, I get it. No, God, it's not about me. It's about you, but that's really good news because when you're all about you, you are a great and perfect father and I get to be your child. Then he continues. This is interesting. So we've been talking about, David's been talking about God, talking about God, talking about God, talking about God, and then all of a sudden something changes here. So God is good. He's so great. He's talking about him, third person. Now watch this. Verse four, even though I walk through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil. Why will you not fear evil, David? David, watch this. For you are with me your rod and your staff all oh, they come for me you see what happened here everything's going good lead shepherd steal waters namesake all oh, so good when things are going good we talk about god this is just a principle for all of us even if you're not a christian when things go really bad ironically that's when we start talking to god so when we talk about joseph in the scenario all of a sudden he is imprisoned or he's enslaved no one present except for God. So guess who he starts to talk to, right? When things are going good, we talk about God. When things are going bad, we talk to him. I was in the closet. You know how I was talking to God? I was screaming at him, like somehow it was my fault, right? Like he calls my bad decisions, right? But it's the first time I talked to him in a while, right? Some of you right now go through a mess, and you can say something like, God, if you are real, then maybe all that other stuff is true, but if you are real, God, would you... Like, would you speak to me? Would you bring your presence? Would you offer your peace? Whatever it is. When things are going good we talk about God. When things are going bad we talk to God. And what else is interesting here is about the valley. Um, I was in Montana. I lived there for two and a half years. We were in kind of central Montana just uh, west of us is where all the pretty part of Montana is. Fault line, you know, big mountains, all the Rockies. So we we're just east of the Rockies, and um, so out my office window, we we're up in the higher part of elevation. And I was on the second floor, third floor of the of the building. I could see out, and I could see four or five mountain ranges out in the distance. And if you if you haven't seen like it, it's amazing. It's not like you know, driving through the Poconos or you know through like uh, Gatlinburg in Tennessee, where, you, where you're just like, oh, we're in the mountains. Didn't realize we're in the mountains. You're just up there. You you know when you get to the mountain because you look up and there's a mountain, right? And so you see it out in the distance, and it seems like it's five miles away. But it's 90 miles away, and then the top of it's a big snow covered, right? Which is beautiful. It's beautiful. And there's a couple places Glacier National Park, Yellowstone, there's a place, uh, and Beartooth Mountains, that's the, the, the front first range uh, on the eastern side of Montana, or middle. There's something called the Beartooth Pass, some of you have driven over, where you drive up to this crazy, crazy elevation. And it's so neat because snow's there all year round. and You can wear shorts and tank tops and a snowboard, right? It's just, so they're snowing de- boarding down and someone's bringing them up on a, you know, like a snow dew or you know one of those snow machines. Bring them back up and they'll do it again. And What's interesting is when you're looking at it, it's, it's mesmerizing and it's beautiful. But no one lives up there, right? It's just snow. That's all there is, right? Because Things can't even grow. It's not like trees can grow there. You see, it looks really pretty, but there is no sustenance up there. You know where all the sustenance is, all the huckleberries, all the stuff, all the green, all the water? It's in the valleys. Like, it's just in the valleys. Like, this isn't isn't what we know. We know that nothing lives up there. It looks pretty, and it's nice to see a good view up there, but nothing lives up there. You can't breathe up there. All the sustenance and all the stuff— actually happens to be in the valleys and so david's going even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i'll fear no evil why because you're with me and your rod and your staff oh they comfort me meaning your your protection and your correction oh they they comfort me god your protection meaning you won't let the enemy punish me oh that's so nice and your correction you won't let me get too far off path right? Your, your correction and your protection. Oh, do they come from me, right? In the valley where the sustenance is, where God has led these folks. And then in verse 5, it says this. Oh, this is so important. Please don't miss it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Oh, my cup overflows. So much to talk about here. This is really, really important because when we think about suffering, think about this. Joseph was in it for a long time, and the gift that he got out of it was he had God with him, okay? He was in it for a long time. And when we think about pain, when we think about suffering, when we think about sorrow, we use terms like this. This too shall pass. Right? You know that term. We use it. This too shall pass. Our objective in the middle of pain is what? To get out of it. Right? We've been told as Americans, avoid pain at all costs. Right? And if you have to experience it, experience it for the least amount of time possible. Right? So our objective is always to get through it, get past it, not live in it. But here's what's interesting. David is talking about this and experiencing. He had lots of people wonder to that. And it talks about God being a shepherd, God being with him. And it says this, you, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. See this? He didn't save David from his enemies. He didn't remove David from his enemies. It actually says, in the presence of my enemies. Are you following this? Here's what God's doing. He's not going, no, no, no I'm not pulling you out of it. I'm coming into it. Like, I'm not pulling you out of it, David. Oh, no, no, I'm bringing the table, I'm bringing the food, and we're going to fellowship right there, and your enemies are going to be around. Right? This, is a, this is important, because this isn't God saying, oh, you're suffering now, if you, you're in the middle of it, uh, you know, stick it out, be tough, it looks better from up here, right? I mean, that's kind of what we think about God. Just be tough, be resilient, it'll get better, it looks better from up here, right? No, 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 that's not how God works. God actually ushers in his presence in the middle of the suffering. It literally says that God brings the food. So he shows up, which is so neat, and you know this. You know this for sure. Like, you have a friend in the middle of pain. One of the best things you can do is show up with a picnic basket. Right? You just, you just know that experience experientially, right? That's why food matters so much. And if you aren't making food, there's a care team that does that you can jump right in the middle of. It's right on the back of the bulletin, and we'll, we'll put you to work. Hundreds of meals are going out from this place every single week, right, or a month. And so you know how that works. And so that's actually what God does in this moment. He literally just he brings the picnic basket. And he sets it up, and he's going... David's going, you actually bring food in your presence right in the middle of the suffering? Which means, which means, he's not just trying to drag you out of the suffering. Which means, if he's a perfect steward, there's something in that suffering he wants us to learn. So here's some questions, probably worth asking. When you're in those situations, if you're in those situations now, or you will be in the future, when you're in those situations, do you view it as if it's you're on an assignment right now from God? whatever that circumstance is, if you're in the middle of that circumstance, whatever your suffering is, are you viewing it as an opportunity right now to be on an assignment for God? Not get out of it, but right now where you are, is there something for you to do while you're in there? And is there something God would like for you to know about yourself? How is he working this for your good and how can he get credit for it? How does he get the glory? And the second one would be this. As a result, can you actually even start rejoicing in those broken places in your life? Knowing that they're on for purpose and they come with God's presence. Can you actually actually start saying, hey God, thanks for this. Thanks that I'm waiting right now. Don't like this waiting. Boy, we've been waiting for a while. But because you're going to bring me your presence and I'm going to have your peace in the middle of this, God, I will still thank you right now, even though it's not the circumstance I want, because you're ushering in your table and you're bringing it here. And it actually says this, um, and it says, uh, you anoint my head with oil. This is pretty neat. This is a hospitable thing. Uh, and traveling, people smelled really bad. They were all sorts of dirty. And so, a gracious host not only prepared a table, but offered oil for you to clean yourself up and so you could sit close to people. So, it's like deodorant, really. And so, so even though this is going, man, you actually anoint my oil, uh, me, my head with oil. Like, you make me presentable with you, God. You make me accessible with you, God. So you're even even doing the little nuances of making it where I don't feel discomfort of sitting so close to you at your table. Like you're the one making me right before you. You're the one cleaning me up. So you anoint my head with oil. And God, here's the crazy thing. As I sit here, I can't believe this. David's going, I can't believe this. And I can agree to this. I cannot believe the amount of pain that I was in 15 years ago, right? Or 17 years ago. But my cup overflows now as a result of it. Like I look at my three kiddos, I'm going, none of this happens, God, without these circumstances. Like you, you not only ushered in your presence, you redeemed it and restored it far beyond what I can imagine. My cup overflows. And then this is the last verse, really important here. Verse six, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So a couple of things here. When David says that, that word, um, surely, that's, that's a covenantal word. That isn't, that, that means that, that's a guaranteed promise, right? It doesn't mean like surely. Surely that's not the case. You know how we say it. It means assuredly. Assuredly meaning I am so confident as a result of this that your goodness and um, love will follow me all the days of my life. In other words, David's going, hey, listen. You hear those footsteps? You hear them coming at the door? That's love and goodness and mercy. That's what that is. Here, here oh, no, gosh. You're walking off path. You're off path you're distracted, you fell in the ditch, and all of a sudden you hear that pitter-patter. You know what that pitter-patter is every single time? Oh, that's that's love and mercy. God promises to bring it and usher it in wherever it is. It is just following you, and it's following you. And don't get too overwhelmed when you're going, okay, does that mean I keep getting off path and God keeps bringing it? Yep, but guess what? It'll end one day. You know when that will end? When you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this is what David's going, hey, as a result of this, I get his presence now and for all eternity. And so the question is, for Jews, for all sorts of folks, is how do you get God's presence like that? Really important question. Do you, do you just have to be in suffering, and then do you uh, meditate? Like, mm, like how do like, how do you get that? Like, how do you access that, right? And for hundreds of years... The thousands of years. This has been a really confusing passage. Okay, God, we want that, and we see your grace, and we know your sunshine, we know all those things, but you still feel so distant from us. Okay, then Jesus shows up on the scene, and in the Gospel of John, written by Jesus' buddy, writes the whole thing for one purpose. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the one who ushers in this presence. By the way, his word for Jesus is Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. So Jesus shows up on the scene, broken world, everybody just distracted, not sure what to do. God seems so distant, seems so absent. There's so much pain in our world. And Jesus shows up and he ushers in this really unique peace. He brings all sorts of peace in, right? And people are really confused because he was teaching from the Old Testament, going, you're talking about yourself like you're the guy who's going to save all the people, meaning you're going to die and you're going to do all those things. You're talking about yourself like you're the Messiah. And so Jesus keeps trying to explain it to them. And these religious people can't get it. Like they can't get the shepherd peace, Right? Then all of a sudden, in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about just the, the brokenness of our world and the two different sides of our world and how broken they are. And he's literally comparing and contrasting them. The way that it would be to live with God and the way to go of the pagans. By pagan, not a mean term, just meaning absent God. There are two ways to live. And so Jesus decides in this moment to give another analogy. Now what's messed up here and it's going to land wrong is the analogy he uses is he's going to talk about shepherds again remember, these guys don't like shepherds. They don't want to talk about shepherds, but I want you to hear about how he refers to shepherds. This is John chapter 10. This is a 1,000 years after David writes this. So for a 1,000 years, this is so nuanced, and we're going, okay, what does it mean to be a shepherd? How is the Lord the shepherd? Watch this. John 10, verse 7. Therefore Jesus said again, so he's talking about this thing, he says, very truly I tell you. In other words, he goes, listen up. If you hear nothing else, if you hear nothing else, listen to this. Very truly I tell you, I am the gate of, for the sheep, and they're going, okay. Here he's talking about gates and sheep. I don't understand. Sheeps are dumb animals. Jesus is obviously not a real gate. Is this okay? Is this like in a, is this an analogy? Are, are we the sheep? Okay, and so he continues, all who have come before me thousands of years are thieves and robbers. Everybody else wants something from me. everybody else wants to use you for something, everybody else has a kind of a, an ulterior motive, right? But the sheep have not. Listen to them. So, all these people come before me. They've tried to hurt, but the sheep haven't listened to them. So, they're still looking for the right thing. They're going, That can't be the thing. I thought the job was the thing. I thought the spouse was the thing. I thought the kids were the thing. But, no, that's not the thing. I can't give my heart to that, right? None of them have listened. And then he goes on again. He says, I am the gate. So, gate again. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So, Jesus is going, Okay, this is is about access. This is about access. I would offer to God, This is about access. I am the gate. Whoever enters me through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture, right? They will find green pastures and waters that are still, right? So he's saying this, and all of a sudden, verse 10, you be, might be familiar with this verse, it says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So you're going to look at uh, your whole life, what you've just experienced as people take advantage of you as a result of sin. You're taking advantage of yourself, just all sorts of damage. What we could define this world as is a lot of destruction and a lot of deception, right? This is how we can uh, uh, describe it. He's going the thief, The thief has just come in to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, he's obviously talking about thieves coming in and stealing sheep. And he's going, I'm the gate, I'm the protector. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus then says this, But I have come that they may have life and life to the full. So he's going, There is a full life. There is a full life. There's a way that you have to live in this misery. There's a full life. There's a way to have God's presence. And they're going, Okay, well, how do we have that full life? Wait, God is my shepherd. How is this working? Now, watch this. Verse 11 Guys, I'm the good shepherd. Right? So for a thousand years they've been wondering who this is and finally Jesus goes no, no, no. You know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want, making me lie light on green pastures and leads me by still waters for my name'sake, you, know you know that guy? Here I am. Finally, a thousand years later he literally declares I'm that shepherd. So yeah, you don't like the shepherd analogy because shepherds are, you know, they're, they're considered less than human. Do you remember Isaiah 53? They talked about how I was going to be appreciated or valued or loved. Hey guys, I'm the good shepherd. And you want to know how you can know I'm the good shepherd? The good shepherd Lays down his life for his sheep. Two thousand years, got okay, from eighteen fifty BC. Joseph is walking the thing, trying to figure out how to experience God. Bring his shepherd brothers into the mix in Egypt. Thousand years later, David is talking about this hope to come, and then finally, a thousand years after that, Jesus goes, "I am that good shepherd." So they're knowing this. They're going, "Okay, I know the good shepherd. I know the good shepherd offers. That. The good shepherd offers you know peace and presence, and he bring he surely offers goodness and kindness." oh he talks about and surely he will live in his house forever so this passage and the band's going to come up and it's going to wrap up with this and this passage talking about that surely surely will live in his house forever and Jesus at the end of this uh, kind of towards the middle of this what's called the, the last discourse this is from John 10 uh, Jesus does a couple more things in John chapter 14 he comes back in and kind of gives his last words and one of the things he tells them is really really messed up he goes okay I'm your good shepherd I've been leading you but bad news guys I'm going, I'm going, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, right? Like, I'm gonna walk away from your presence. Don't worry, you're gonna get another, the Holy Spirit just like me, but he says he's gonna leave and they start freaking out. They're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've been looking for your presence. Shepherd, we've been looking for your presence. You've been here, God with us and you're telling us you're gonna leave again. What, what? Like, they're really freaking out. And John chapter 14, verse one says this. Jesus goes, hey, 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 don't let your hearts be troubled. Take a deep breath. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And then he says this, believe in God, the good shepherd. Believe also in me. And then he says this. For in my father's house, oh, there's many rooms. There's many rooms. Remember that? Surely will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy. There are many rooms. And he says this. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? That where I am, you can be also. Literally, he's going, no, no, no. This is, this is me giving you a picture of what's going to come. Dwell in my house, you can come, you can come, right? There you'll be also. And he says this, and you know the way to get there. Remember, he says, I'm the gate, I'm the gate, I'm the gate, I'm the good shepherd. And Thomas goes, Wait, wait, no, 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 we don't know how to get there, Jesus. We don't know how to get there. And Jesus calms him down and he says, Oh, Thomas, you do. He says this, I am the way, I am the truth and the life, the gate. No one gets to the Father but through me. In other words, hey guys, I'm the one to shepherd you. I'm the way, I'm gonna guide you. I'm the truth, I'm gonna continue to comfort you and correct you and watch this, I'm the life, meaning not only am I the guide, this is crazy turn of events I'm also the destination so you get to usher me in at your table and I will never leave I'll usher myself in at the table and I will never leave And just want you to see this and we'll work through it in the next couple weeks I just want you to marvel at the craziness of this story that was written over 2,000 years of history for Jesus to give us the punchline of he's the good shepherd and then for us 2,000 years later to declare that he's the good shepherd, why? so that God can love us, welcome us into his family, and so that he can get all the credit. So we're going to finish up today by singing about this great God, and then we're going to jump back in and work through this story of Joseph for the next two weeks as well. So would you stand with me as we sing? ¡Vale, So that's some good singing, guys. Uh, You may be like, oh, there's a new guy on stage. Some of you know Christian, some of you don't. Um, If you're... One of the things we have going on here, you started hearing about it, and you'll hear about it a ton next week. So please, please, please do what you can to be here. You'll get to in, uh, be introduced to a lot of staff. It'll be a little bit of a different format happening up here. Um, but starting in September, we have a Saturday night service. So we'll have the nine, the ten forty five, just like we do now, but we'll also add a five o'clock service on Saturday night. You'll hear about more of the reasons why next week. But that did require us we're thinking about worship and teaching and uh, just some additional personnel. And one of the things we've also been trying to solve is how do we how do we do all that we're doing and yet, especially if family ministry, really, really, really engaged with our local schools, Avon Grove, Charter, Avon Grove, High School, Oxford, all this kind of stuff, uh, and trying to figure that out. And so one of the things we did back at the beginning of the month is we hired a new staff member. If you may have known Christian, he was an intern here several years back, then went to Memphis Theological Seminary to get his master's in youth ministry. And so he started back here. He'll be leading worship for us and kind of overseeing high school ministry and helping shape that. And so that's Christian here. You can clap for him here. That's it. Yeah. So... He'll be around, and he'll tell you more about how you can get involved, both in worship and audio video and in student ministry if you're interested next week. But if you have any questions for him, you can always email him right now at christian at church. Now, we call him Christian, but he likes to be, he goes—he kind of shortens his name. He likes to be called Christ. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'm just joking. That's not true. That's not true. That's it. Really, really hope you have a fabulous, fabulous week, and uh, there is Celebrate Recovery this week on Wednesday, but that's it during the week, and then the Lego, Lego Build Day, uh, Wednesday morning, if you've got any kids who want to build at Legos, or if you just want to do something. That's it, you have a great week, see you later.